Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another uh, episode of Atlanta Business Radio. And it is Tuesday, so it is our uh, very special, special um, episode of the month, Tuesdays with Corey. And of course, I'm joined today by my host, Corey Rick. How are you doing, Corey? I'm doing great, Katie. How are you? I am doing fantastic. And so uh, who did you bring in studio with you today? Well, I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. We have two exceptional ladies here. We have Nadia Bilchek, whose company is Greater Impact Communications, and her company delivers presentation skill training, strategy as to maximizing executive presence and leadership, and assistance on how to best leverage the power of your brand. Nadia, welcome. Thank you, Corey. Lovely to be here. We also have Ruth King, and and Ruth has a great business. She is a profitability master and helps companies maximize their profits. She, too, is an author, having written the following books, The Ugly Truth About Cash, The Ugly Truth About Small Business, The Ugly Truth About Managing People, and the courage to be profitable. She also has a really cool TV show that I was fortunate enough to be on earlier this fall. And she's helped many business owners in the HVAC space be better in their businesses. Ruth, welcome. Thanks for having me, Corey. So starting out, Ruth, introduce yourself to the listenership and how you got to be in the business of helping the business owners that you do help. Well, I started in a very different environment. I started out as a chemical engineer. So hang on a second. <laughs> that's that's a pretty significant leap, wouldn't you say? I had two summer jobs in chemical engineering, loved them both, got in the real world and absolutely hated it. Why? Because I'm not a person to sit behind a desk all day and that's what I was doing. It was all things that related to numbers and number crunching. And remember, this is back in the day when we didn't have really Nin- pow- 1995? Yeah, we wish. <laughs> How about 1979? Not a whole lot of computer power, a lot more slide rolls, a lot more calculators. So Certainly a different time. It was a very different time, and I didn't like it. I absolutely hated it. Mm. So I went back to school, got my MBA, had a friend who was um, actually working for a franchisor called Service America, which was a franchisor of heating and air conditioning companies, found a niche, never left it. It was cool. And I found out, you know, going through chemical engineering, you go through MBA school and everybody freaks out with differential equations and I'm laughing. But I found out I was really good at explaining financials, explaining numbers, because numbers are in my head, very much so. And that's how it all came about. And that's how I started really working with small businesses was because I hated what I was doing and had to find something else to do. You know, you hear so often uh, that people don't like what they're doing. And yet, People continue to do that. And I, I always I, I, I love it when people realize and, and they tell themselves the truth and they say, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. So what I mean, for you, what was the jumping off point? How did you decide, hey, I, 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 even though I went to school for this, I can't do this anymore? And, and how did you decide to transition? Well, I, I went back to school and got my MBA. Granted, I had degrees in chemical engineering, but it wasn't where I was going now. I totally pissed off my parents at that point because they had spent all this money on my education. And I said, Daddy, one thing that's really cool is they teach you how to think and they teach you how to solve problems. And that never, ever goes away. And so I found, I found a niche. I started working with the Small Business Development Center back in the 80s when it was still Sunset Legislation. And it wasn't a full thing yet and started the one indicator, which has now since moved and found out I really liked what I did. 
Now, I was also in my 20s, so I didn't, you know, I didn't have a house that I had to worry about or anything along those lines. So I was still fairly free, so I could make that decision. Well, you could have, you could sort of afford to take that leap and that risk, it yeah. sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I was working for somebody, and I just quit. I, I literally quit. I, I said, that's it. It's done. It's over. And went out and did it. Now, a 23 or 24-year-old is not a big deal. Well, it is still a big deal to make that decision. I think it is. And then um, built it up, went to work with Service America for about 18 months later on, and push came to shove, and we left, well, all of us left there a, a day, and I swore I'd never go back and work for somebody else again. And I said I'd rather starve. And when was that? 1979, 1989. So you've been out on your own, doing your own thing since 1989. That's, what, 30 years? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're the numbers person, right? Yeah. Is that 29 years, 30 years? It's actually 30, a little over 30 years that I've been working with contractors and with small business owners. And if you take what I did... Well, Business Ventures is the consulting firm, and that's been going since 1981. Kind of went underground for a couple of years when I started working with Service America, but I always had a client or two. So if you want to take it back to 1981, it's a lot more than 30 years. Yeah. It's, it's 37. And so how 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 is, I mean, obviously it's different working for somebody else versus working for you. Mm-hmm. What would you tell people about that experience? Well, good, I don't, bad, and indifferent. Good, bad, or indifferent. Number one, I have total freedom to do what I want. Number two is I have to worry about keeping the roofs over the heads of many people now and food on their table. So there is the, the thing that you have to do from that perspective and enjoy what you're doing. I mean, I love what I do. It's not. Gee, that doesn't come through at all. No, no, no. <laughs> and I really, truly do love what I do. And I can't imagine working for anybody else anymore yeah. because I get to take the direction and we started you know you were on my tv show well we started that in 2002 was actually um 2001 we had a um a contract to start start it with it was 1.6 million dollars i had 800,000 of investment riding on it and a partner and got a phone call and said the contractors contracts no longer even though we had started it and lost it all and still started and you were sitting in that studio that was, that was cool. That was 2001 when we started it. And so 2002, March 13th of 2002 is the first broadcast that we did. And it, we kept going. I mean, you know, one of the things that happened after that was after that phone calls, I went outside to the office and just sat on the curb and cried. Yeah. I mean, that's just a normal emotional reaction. I'm sure, I'm sure a guy would do that, too. And then I had this little voice in the back of my head from my dad going, just pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and keep going. And that's all it said. And so started there. The last 25 grand I had on a credit card, we started. And how many shows have you, how many TV shows have you done? What do you think? I have no idea. We have 600 shows in um, Profitability Revolution, which is where you were. I probably have an equal number of shows with the HVAC channel easily. So probably over a thousand. You know, profitability, it, it seems like it, it's a straightforward thing, but it it's not. It, it isn't. No, it's not. And, and what do you find with these companies? Uh, your expertise, I'm sure, is extremely valuable. What what do you find that, in terms of adjustments that you make and your in your insight that you give companies? What are some of the most common things that you find that companies have to change to be better? They're afraid of their employees. What does that mean? That means that they know a person's not in the right position or they're not profitable for them or they're driving everybody crazy. They need to be gone and they won't do it. So what happens then? It implodes or they're not as profitable as they could. They are miserable. Um, I have one client that we replaced in a year 
every one of its employees except one. And he's doing phenomenally well now. But he also took the, the leap of faith that he knew he had a real problem and he had to fix it. I mean, there's other things where they just don't understand their numbers. And they don't understand that overhead is a part of cost. It's not only the direct cost, i.e. the cost of a labor or materials and producing the product. So sometimes it's just not understanding numbers. Other times it's you've got the wrong people in place. Why do you think people are afraid of their employees? Because they figure a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And I hate to use a cliche. But they're, they're, yeah, that makes sense. they're afraid that they might find something worse rather than they might find something better. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> it's being totally conservative as opposed to uh, being in attack mode. Yeah. You know, it's like competing. I mean, you don't want to just – you yeah. want to keep winning more as opposed to just, you know, maintaining status quo. But I, I get having been in companies, I get that that, that can happen. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, the one equation that I make them all do is what is their net profit per hour? That's for every revenue-producing hour, every billable hour you have, what are you actually bringing to the bottom line? And quite frankly, it's sometimes it's $2 an hour. Sometimes it's negative, which means they're paying their customers to do their work. And the, they'll look at that and go, I won't use the expletives. We're, we're in a clean show here. I, 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 appreci <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm sure Katie appreciates that. <laughs> but... Think about it. You know, that is usually the wake-up call and the shocking call. And it's like, hey, what do we do to get this higher? And the average that I've found for businesses, not only, in, you know, that I've worked with over the years, is it's about 22 bucks an hour. Now, there's some that are doing a lot better than that, and there's some who are doing a lot worse than that. But, you know, why would you do all the work, have your name on the dotted line, have all the stress, you know, and, and the rewards too. Don't get me wrong. Sure. For twenty-two bucks an hour. Yeah, I mean that's that's your a fair bookkeeper's that, probably making that. Yeah, that's a fair question. And that's usually the eye-opening experience, and it's like, okay, what do we do to make it better? Well, isn't there something to having the bad employee or having the problem employee? Isn't there? Don't you see a significant lift when that person is oh. either repositioned or? Career readjustment. Escorted out of the company. Career readjustment program. How's that? I, I like it. <laughs> but think, yeah, and everybody else. I mean, the entire morale lifts. Yes. And the, the fun part about all of it is once you start putting everything in place from a profitability standpoint and all of your employees get bonuses, not Christmas bonuses anymore, not a dartboard, I'm going to give this person X because I like it, or they did this really good this year, <clears throat> and they actually do it based on profitability and longevity that they've been in the company, your employees start kicking out the bad people because it's affecting their bonus. And you will start seeing that. They won't put up with somebody who is the slacker. They won't put up with somebody who is actually affecting their bottom line. How did you arrive at that? I mean, I think that's, I, I'm in agreement with what you just said. How did you come to that? I don't know. I figured it out one day. I, you know, I drive around a lot. You know, <laughs> what can I say? I, I'm on airplanes a lot. I do a lot of thinking. But it really, you know, I looked at a lot of the bonus plans that are around and nobody had one that was reasonable in terms of how do you really and truly impact an entire organization and have everybody participate in what I call fairly. All right. It's what not, does that mean? That means it's not an emotional decision by the owner because yeah. he liked or did not like a person or that person screwed up right before bonuses and that's what's in his mind. It is, you know, being the engineer, it is very logical. It based is based on metrics and numbers, that's right? That's right. Exactly. It's not based on any sort of emotion. And it's funny because when a long-term employee leaves, 
everybody knows that their bonuses get bigger and they all love it. <laughs> We've had that happen. Can you explain kind of a general, in a general sense, uh, the bonus system yeah, that you it's, help employers it's, set up? It's really easy. You take the number of months the person is employed times their compensation. You know, sales get, you know, the commission and all that sort of stuff, but their total compensation. So somebody who's been there a really long time, let's say 10 or 15 years, but there's not making as much as somebody else who's there a shorter period of time, their actual bonus number is bigger because they've been there longer. And so what we do is you add up, you multiply that number of months they've been there times their compensation for each employee and add up the total. And the total is this huge, huge number. And that person's percentage of the bonus is simply their number, whatever it is, divided by the big, huge number on the bottom. It might be 0.005%. It might be 0.002%. You know, it might be 1%. I mean, it just depends upon how many employees you have and how long they've been there. And then the owners decide how much of a bonus they want to give. And normally we establish not only a revenue goal, but a profit goal. Because yeah. you're not going to give out bonuses if the company is not profitable. Right. So they have to achieve both. And that's totally dependent on what the owners want to do. And I let them do whatever they want. So it sounds like the employees really uh, hold a lot of uh, their destiny in their hands with their performance yeah, and they their activity and what they do. It all makes sense to me. They should. I mean, they're there to to do something, and, and I think, you know, quite frankly, millennials love it simply because they like to be compensated based on their contribution. And this is the best way I know of to compensate yes. them based on their contribution. Well, that makes sense. They, so how, has, uh, how did you decide to write the books that you've written? The first book, Degley Truth About Small Business, started because it was my thing of losing a $1.6 million contract, 800000 investment, and a partner the same day. And I knew if I had actually survived that, other people had survived horrific experiences too. So I got a publisher interested in it, sent out a letter to the top 250 chambers of commerce, and the story started pouring in. So that's how the first one got written. And I had um, a three-book contract with Sourcebooks. It did really, really well. So we did, then did The Ugly Truth About Managing People, which was the next book. And the, the third <laughs> book in the series was supposed to be The Ugly Truth About Cash. But Source got out of the small business market. And so they let me out of my contract. I was pissed. <laughs> I mean, I really, truly was. Can I say that? <laughs> okay. uh, you just did. <laughs> just in terrible. case anybody was wondering. <laughs> so I wrote The Courage to be Profitable instead. And that's just based, it's literally P&L's balance sheets, how to really and truly understand the financial side of business in English rather than accounting ease. Take you less than 30 minutes a month, just do it. Yeah. Just absolutely do it. Does it help you in your business with your clients to be able to refer them to the books and so on? And, and, and does it help uh, truncate the client's learning curve if by, by reading your books? And, 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 and in effect, it really makes you more effective, does it not? Yeah, I just say, if I don't know the person, you know, I got a referral from somebody, first thing I'll do is go buy the courage to be profitable. It's like 10 bucks on Amazon. And if you can't afford 10 bucks on Amazon, why are we even talking? Yeah. And so um, I make them read that first. And it's like, okay, the light bulb starts going on. And then I implement everything that's in the courage to be profitable and other things too. But reality is it, it, it starts there. And then you, the reason I wrote the – finished the book, you know, or the, the Ugly Truth series, is I had a um, company owner call me and said, would you like – would you help me? My financials and my pricing doesn't seem to be right. And, I put it all into my spreadsheet, and it was the most diabolical, creative, nasty way I've ever seen to steal. And I've seen a lot over the years. 
And what, you mean employees were stealing from? Yeah, the bookkeeper. Oh, somebody was. I can't say the bookkeeper was. I can't say I who understand. it was. But what they would do is, let's say we have a total on our P&L that says our auto expenses this month were $1,000. If you add up the sub expenses, gasoline, oil, maintenance, repairs, it came out to more than $1,000. So they had changed the totals. And it's really easy to do. Really? Yeah. And But who in their right mind thinks about adding up all the you know, subparts of a P&L, you assume that, you know, QuickBooks does their job or whatever accounting system is doing their job. $52,000 later. I wow. finished the book. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So do you find that you're, it, 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 to me, it's having played, you know, athletics in high school and college, it seems to me like you're a coach. And mm -hmm. do, do, do you find that you're, um, clients are they, they must be very open to your direction open to your experience uh um and, and you're helping them get better to me it seems like you're you know you're like a profitability coach yeah i am or a consultant i usually have very long or very short relationships with clients <laughs> i mean my oldest client started with me in 1989 i've had several who i started in the 1990s who have sold their businesses or you know gone on or whatever else it is and I have very long relationships yeah. or very short ones. There's generally not one in the middle. How do you know when to uh, uh, end a relationship? You, you mentioned that you've had long relation, a lot of long relationships, some short ones. How do you know when it's not right? What, what are the triggers for you? They're not doing what I tell them to do. So why would I waste their time, my time, and their yeah. money? Time is the most important thing that we've got. And I'm not going to waste their time or their money or my time on somebody who's not going to do what I know works. Yeah. I mean, I probably couldn't say that when I was in my 30s, yeah. but I can say it now because what I do absolutely does work. Yeah. It's just you got to be willing to fire the people who need to be fired. And if you're not willing to do it, it won't work. Um, and you've got to be have an open mind to listen. And I'm very direct, as you can probably tell. I never would have picked up on that either. <laughs> and some people can't hand, handle direct. And that's okay. They'll find somebody who can work with them. I generally, depending upon a personality style, can be not direct because I've done all the personality profiling and training and all that sort of fun stuff. But as a general rule, I'm there to do a job. I'm there to help them get better or more productive or more profitable or whatever it's going to be. And that's my job. And so it's, it's something that, that works really well. And it's really cool when they do really well too. I started working with a client probably, I think it was 1999, and they were $700,000 in size. They had just bought the business from their former owner, um, from their boss for all intents and purposes. June 30th of 2015, <clears throat> they walked out with $9 million in cash. Mm. That was cool. That was really cool. That's some movement in the right direction. Yeah. They went from 750 to about $10 million and $9 million in cash, bought them out, and they walked away. Unbelievable. Which was cool. It was really cool. How do you balance the writing, you know, the TV and all and all that you do? How do you balance all that? Uh, do you gravitate more toward one area than the other? Wow. Um, because I, I, having been a, on your show, I, I just thought you did an excellent job. Oh, thank you. And to me, it was very easy. Now, uh, I would say I make that it look easy. <laughs> you, I don't think it's easy. Um, and, and so it's not, for actually. me, it was very, very, um, comfortable mm -hmm. because I was 
you know, they say, I, I forget who, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt said that you should do something every day that scares you. And I definitely achieved my goal <laughs> that day when I was on your TV show. But you made everything comfortable and everything, another word that I would use is seamless. Yeah, we try. We, we try very hard to do that. You know, the, the thing that works really well is there's some days I'm working on consulting. There's other days I'm, I'm doing the shows and preparations for shows. There's other days I write every single week. Yeah. I have a, an email newsletter I still call an e-zine that I started in June of 1999. Every week I write and every week it goes out to the, to the group. Hmm. So, I mean, every week I write. So, you know, a lot of it comes from my client experiences and sometimes they get, oh, you used me this week. <laughs> do you gravitate, do you find yourself uh, favoring one more than the other, the writing, you know, no. the TV show, the consulting? I like it all. I like it all. So I have that, fun doing it all. So is there any is there any issue balancing your time? Because I see all of that you're involved in, and that's one that's one of the questions I had. Because um, you don't strike me as somebody that spends much idle time. No, I don't. And to be perfectly frank, you know, you know that my husband passed away about two years ago. Uh, yes, I remember that. I, I'm. I can't. I cannot. Could not be doing what I am doing now if he were still alive. You know, I had often wondered how. People got it all done. And Barbara Corcoran once made a comment that if she had had her kids early, the business would not be where it actually ended up. She had her kids very late in life. And you may know she, you know, she's on Shark Tank. Shark Tank. And, uh, but she started as a real estate investor. And I, I had met her and talked to her and stuff mm -hmm. along those lines and way before Shark Tank. And I, I get what she said now. I didn't understand it at the time, but... I mean, I have time to totally focus. I don't. Have, my <clears throat> child is you know, going to be thirty years old as she's on her own, and I literally have time to totally focus on the business. And I didn't two years ago. Yeah. Well, I think about um, you know growing up. Uh, my parents are no longer here, but I had an older sister. Um, uh, in fact, you know, uh, my sister and my mother. Uh, I was heavily influenced by them. Uh, and this is really the basis for the show is extolling the virtues of successful uh, females. But I look at all the time that my mom and dad spent with us, a lot of time, and I benefited tremendously. And, you know, my wife and I made a decision not to have the kids. And I wonder, you know, my dad said to me one time, he said, you know, there's no judgment one way or the other. He said, but if you, uh, if, if you have kids, you're going to wonder where all your time is. Mm -hmm because it's, it's probably being applied there. So it is an advantage to have, uh, to being singularly focused, to not have those other things that uh, could uh, need your time. Well, yeah. And when Kate was growing up, my daughter was growing up, she decided that she wanted her mother's attention because I was out of town, not to the extent that I am now. And so she decided to flunk all of her tests to get her mother's attention. This is a nine-year-old. She got it. I'll bet that pleased you greatly. <laughs> I made her a deal. I said, I won't be out of town for more than two nights a week. And I kept to it until she was about 16 when she said, bye, mom, I've got my truck. I'm out of here. Not, you know, out of here, but she's grown up. And we still to this day, her birthday, we always go away for a really cool week or 10 days. Oh. And that's how we that's my birthday present to her every every year now. So, I mean, what do you give to a 30 year old other than time? Yeah, uh, sounds like a good start. So how exactly are you getting your clients? Right now, it's all through a referral. Yeah. Every bit what a of great it. place to be for you. Yeah, it is. It really and truly is. 
I get all of them for referral. I still do a lot of speaking, and some come through speaking, but mm. most of it is coming through referral right now. Yeah. How did you get where you're getting? Well, this is how we got there. Yeah. What's the most challenging thing do you feel about your business? Well, if I could clone myself, I could do a whole lot more. I mean, there, you know, you talk about time, and it really and truly is time. I mean, I don't waste a whole lot of time. But I no, I've never still, gotten that from you. I still don't have, you know, I could do so much more if I had more time. Yeah. Well, how does how does technology uh, play into your leveraging your time? Uh, it seems to me you've, you know, with your TV show, you've got a great you've got a great educational tool there, and that must help you leverage your time somewhat, does it not? It does. Yeah, uh, but it's also okay. We, we're shooting on this particular day, sure, and we're you know we're doing this on this particular day, or we're doing whatever else it is. And a lot of time on weekends, I'm still talking to clients and things along those lines yeah. until I tell them, okay, this weekend I'm off. Yeah, don't call me. Yeah. Other than that, I'm open. What's the most satisfying thing in your uh, about what you do in your business? Light bulbs go on. It's the fun part of saying, "Got it." Yeah. And seeing them take it and just run with it. Yeah. And that's cool. To me, that's really, really, really cool. Well, see, it must be cool, you know, being you know, sort of their coach and their mentor, giving them things that you know will work and you know will help them and then seeing them apply it. Yeah, that's the fun part. That's a lot of fun because it's cool to, you know, when they walked out the door with $9 million in cash, I was, yes. Yeah. And they're, you know. They're doing what they want to do. I mean, they like being retired, as they put it. They're not, they're not older either. I mean, they're young enough at this particular point that, you know, one of them hasn't even hit 60 yet. So he's on life number two. Yeah. You know, that doesn't seem that old to me, just for the record, while we're on that subject. No, it, it's not that old. It did when I was 21, but now that uh, I'm creeping up on that, I have a whole different perspective toward it. Yeah. How has your business evolved over the years, Ruth? How's it evolved? Oh my gosh! I mean, if you look at what we did back in the 1980s and 1990s, we had the technology, and you mentioned technology. Yeah. I mean, we were doing video conferencing over standard dial-up phone lines. The internet was not even invented wow. when we started. I couldn't be doing today what I was doing back then. It just the technology just keeps going and going and going. Does it make it any easier for me? Probably in terms of how we get things out from that perspective, but from a consulting perspective, it's still me and only me. Yeah. Well, and you've done a, uh, to me, you've done an incredible job of uh, branding uh, things. Um, and I'm certain that you could help pretty much any business owner with your experience. You've been invited on the show because you're successful and you've also been favorably introduced by a former guest. What exactly sets you apart? Do you think if you had to pick two or three things? Persistence. I get that from you. Yes. Um, I don't give up. I guess that's persistence. And I'm in a position that I really love what I do. And yeah. not very many people can say that. Yeah, I, I, I get that from you, that you're very, very happy. I know even that impacted me, even after Katie introduced us when we had breakfast, I thought, you know, here's somebody, and I can spot that a mile away. I've worked with people for a long time, and I thought, here's a here's a lady that's very, very content, very happy mm -hmm. with what she's doing, and that's, it's really cool, mm -hmm. especially since there's so many people I think that that really aren't in the place that you're in, you know, with with being happy and so on. So yeah. congratulations on Thank doing you. that. We're um, if you could give the younger version of Ruth some advice about knowing what you know now. 
looking back, what, what would you do? What would you tell her? I would tell the younger Ruth not to be able, not to be afraid to make a mistake. I had to be perfect. Believe it or not, way back, you know, when I was in college and everything along those lines, it was like I should have dropped courses and the, you know, the should haves type things. Um, but don't be afraid of making a mistake. Don't be afraid of doing and going where your path is leading you. Um, you'll find your passion with it after a while. I mean, there was a point in time when I absolutely hated doing financials, believe it or not. But that got through it when I saw what the results were. In my early 30s, a lot of times I did, you know, financial yuck. But it really got me to where I am today and being able to help customers and things along those lines. So, you know, whatever you go to school for may not be what you're going to end up doing. And, you know, if you start a path and you hate it, change. Excellent advice. I think that, you know, that that part of it, I think, is is really impactful for me. The fact that you went to school for uh, one thing and you decided early on that this wasn't for you. And then you decided to to transition. Um, if there was a young lady that wanted to follow in your footsteps, Ruth, what would you tell her? Work her butt off. Learn everything she possibly can. And then it's not only numbers, it's financials, it's marketing, it's dealing with people. Get as much training as you possibly can. Learn how to deal with people. Learn all the personality profiles that you possibly can. And become a generally rounded person. You know, I'm known for financials, but financials affect every part of business. So you got to know marketing. you got to know dealing with people, hiring, firing, although I leave those to the HR experts these days because of all the, the laws that are around. Uh, but just don't quit learning. Keep reading. Keep writing if you want to write. And don't stop. You, you've had tremendous success and congratulations on all that. If the listenership wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? You have phone number, email, website that you'd like to give us? Uh, phone number here is 770-729-8000. And Profitability Revolution website is rking at profitabilityrevolution.com. Ruth, continued success. You've been a great guest. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks, Corey. I appreciate it. We'd like to welcome Nadia now onto the show. Nadia, how are you this morning? I am wonderful. I loved listening to Ruth King, yeah. and I learned a lot just sitting here. Yeah. So you've had a you've had a great career, also, and you've had, uh, but it didn't start off in the United States, did it? No, I'm actually from Johannesburg, South Africa, and in 1997, I was a primetime anchor in South Africa, and I had the first media and presentation skills school in the country. And it was a rather remarkable time to be living in South Africa because Mandela became president in 1994. So although he was released from prison in 1990, 1994 was officially the end of apartheid. We now had Nelson Mandela as the president. So 1997, I'm living in South Africa. Did you see the movie Invictus, Corey? I did. So we were the rainbow nation, no longer the pariahs of the world. Spectacular career and on a cold Thursday night in 1997, we got a call that a friend of ours had had five armed guys burst into his house, torture him with a burning iron, and they said he was in critical condition and not expected to live, and he didn't. And that same night, my mother called to say a lawyer, a friend of ours, very active in the anti-apartheid movement, had been hijacked and murdered. So my husband looks at me and says, look, we've got an opportunity to move to Atlanta. We had actually won our green cards in the lottery. So in six weeks, I move countries and continents and sides of the road. Wow. 
and moved to Atlanta, Georgia, went from total visibility, being a household name, and started again in 1997. That's, that's not just a transition. That's multiple transitions. And the reality is, you know, people, Ruth was talking about the fact that her husband passed away two years ago. That's a change. You know, for me, it was changing countries and careers. I was very lucky in that I came here and started anchoring for the CNN airport network yes. almost immediately. But the reality is change happens in our lives. It does. I mean, you know, you're in long-term care. People get ill. And what I realized that although my change was so dramatic, people get divorced, their children grow up, things happen. And, and resilience and dealing with change is probably one of the most important qualities, abilities, capabilities we develop. So it has been quite a journey. When I came to Atlanta, I did not know anybody with the exception of the head of security at CNN Center. And I knew of him because he knew the head of security at Mnet Television where I was an anchor. So when I'm teaching networking, I always say, you know, you just never know where your contacts come from, right? Well, you don't know who is connected to who and somebody that uh, uh, little fish sometimes grow up to be big fish. And, and so you never know. And the security guard could be your best friend. Yes. <laughs> you know, because so often we think of the people who are going to help us or so high up in business. And, but, you know, how you deal with everyone every day is so critical yes. to your success and, yeah. and building those kind of relationships. So yeah. 1997, moved to Atlanta, Georgia with two small children and start again. And I always say I wish I knew in 1997 what I know now. Yeah. And when I teach and speak and train, you know, that's part of the, the wisdom of the journey, isn't it? It is. Going through that. So, you know, one of my best quotes is, don't let good suffering go to waste. How, how so there's multiple. So it seems to me, based on what your story and, and, and what prompted you to come to the United States, it seems, is it fair to say that you didn't feel like you were safe staying where you're at? Is that? Yes, we had a sense in Johannesburg at the time and Johannesburg is really considered one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Yeah. I also do share with you all in this moment, this was pre-9-11 and pre-Columbine and pre-Sandy Hook. So, you know, the thought yeah. of raising my children in a safer place was the motivator. Yeah. And to all intents and purposes, living in Atlanta day to day, I mean, none of us, not Ruth, not you, not me, not Katie's worried is our car going to be there when we get outside. Johannesburg, the day-to-day -day crime is so real. Hmm. It's still one of the most remarkable cities in the world. And South Africa is a miracle when you think of a relatively peaceful transition, if you think of Libya or Egypt. or So it's, it's complicated, and that's what I always say. But part of my heart is always in South Africa. Of course. But just the transition to a new country and having to rebrand yourself and rebuild a business. You know, part of when I was on television, I remember <clears throat> doing a program for Mercedes-Benz and I said to them, don't you want me to tell you what I'm going to do with your people? And they said, no, don't worry, we've seen you on TV because that kind of visibility gives you such credibility. When you start again and you, you are having to rebrand reestablish your career it takes so much because you've really got to start networking in South Africa I had an organic network you know I had people like you or Ruth who I grew up with or went to school with I remember being on the front page of the Sunday Times when I started my media training business because the head of the Sunday Times had gone to high school with me 
that's an organic network. Now, in America, most people aren't living where they were raised or went to school. Yeah. When I teach classes here, yeah. I'll have a class of 50 people and I'll say, how many of you were actually born in Atlanta and raised? And maybe two or three. So part of just the importance of real relationship building, I had to learn that because I didn't have to make the effort in South Africa. So I had to start doing consciously what I had never really had to do because I had an organic network. So a lot of my work is really based on my journey, what I've learned, what I've learned from listening to people like you and Ruth, and just then making it very practical for people to say, I know what I should be doing in terms of relationship building, but do I do it? And there's often a big gap between, yeah. I mean, you know, Ruth coaches people, they know what they should be doing, but they hire her because she helps them implement it. Well, and probably knowing Ruth holds her feet to the fire to say, hey, is this going to get done? And if so, what's the timeline? But the skill that it takes Ruth to get people, because it's about mindset and hardcore technique. Yeah. And whether I'm teaching leadership presence or networking or your brand, it's about shifting people's mindset yeah. so that they understand why they need to make these changes or, you know, there's three things I always say why they need to stop doing what they're doing, why they need to start doing other things or continue doing, but it's raising people's levels of consciousness and then giving hardcore technique. Yeah. Because part of it is what am I practically giving you that you can do? But until you help people shift mindset, yeah. none of that matters. Don't you think that the majority of people's issues lie in the four inch space between their ears? <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> The, the most important conversation you ever have is with yourself. What do you tell people about that, Nadia? I mean, you, you clearly are incredibly resilient to, to have, for me, that, I mean, knowing you, that really, uh, that really impacts even more how, you know, I've always been impressed with you. I've, I've seen you in action. I've benefited by your techniques, but that, that's, that's a whole nother level, you know, moving you know, countries, you know, starting over, you know, bringing your family over here, getting everybody reestablished and, and all that. Um, what do you tell people about reestablishing, about establishing their brand? Well, a brand for a person is different to a brand for a company or product. A brand for a company or product is like a reputation for a person. So you can't dictate a personal brand. I can't walk around with a T-shirt that says more saving, more doing, or Coca-Cola taste the feeling. So a personal brand really is how you show up in people's minds. And that's based on every interaction with you, mm. every experience I have on, of you. So my branding programs always start on an individual basis with how do you want to show up in people's minds? And it's interesting having Ruth King here because Ruth's expertise is really in business branding and in profitability of companies. I do a lot of work with individuals within organizations saying, are they as an individual, as one of those employees you spoke about, adding the most value? And I begin the process always by saying, how do you want to show up? And if anybody's listening today and says, okay, how do I want to start this process? Start thinking about what are the first five things you want to have to come to mind when people think about you? So in the same way as when I think about Starbucks or Apple, what pictures, what experiences come to mind? When people think about Corey Rick, what experiences, what moments, what pictures come to mind. And the reality is we are already branded. We already have a reputation, whether we are consciously involved in the process or not. 
My goal is to get people consciously thinking about how they want to show up in people's minds and then saying, what experiences am I providing to be seen in that way? And so often there's a delta. There's such a disconnect between I, I want to be seen as, one of the examples I always give is I still work at CNN as a producer on the weekends. I want to be seen as having initiative. Well, I can't walk around saying, hello, Corey, hello, Ruth, I'm Nadia, I've got initiative. Unless you experience me in that way and unless I've provided the actual concrete evidence to be seen in that way, you yeah. don't see me in that way. So I give an example when Muhammad Ali died. We knew that Muhammad Ali was very ill on the Friday. So that Friday, I remember thinking, who can I get? So I spoke to Manu Pakwa and Don King and, and Evander Holyfield. So by the time he did die on the Saturday, very tragically, I had those people that I could immediately call. So I always give that as an example. If you want to be seen in one way, and the same if Ruth's working with the company and they want to be seen as having the best customer service, <clears throat> they have to provide that experience. And they have to provide that experience consistently. And, you know, it's an interesting thing is we sometimes have to step back and almost decode what we do intuitively. Of course, we know that a reputation should be reinforced by interaction and action. But so often people would like to be seen in a certain way. And when we do this exercise, we actually realize that they're not providing the experience. I was once in the newsroom and one of the directors, you know, breaking news is a very volatile time. And he was screaming and shouting. And I said to him, do you want some feedback? He said, yes, always have to ask, right? I said, how do you want to show up in people's minds? He said, it's calm under pressure. I want to be seen as somebody who can deal with stress. I said, the experience you've just provided is contrary to that. So a big part of what I'm teaching is saying, yeah. is the way you are behaving congruent with, in harmony with the overall way you want to be perceived? Then once you do that, yeah. every decision you make is based on that. And so often in the corporate world where I'm the space that I'm in, people will get a very rude email. And what's your automatic reaction to that rude, aggressive, angry email? You want to respond in the same way, right? So I'm saying, is the way you are about to respond congruent with, in harmony with the overall way you want to be perceived? Well, that makes life so much easier because you're not depending on other people's anger, frustration as to how you want to act or react. Yeah. And Corey, this is important both personally and professionally. Uh, yeah, it sure is. I mean, it's almost, it's almost never a good idea to respond when you get an email that doesn't strike you right. I mean... Um, I think it's easy to respond that way, but you know how many times that you you do that, and then you have to walk back whatever you said, or you spend time, uh, you know, apologizing or what have you, and it's almost never a good idea to to respond right away. But many qualities come up, you know, when I think of you. Obviously, resilient, uh, you know, is one that comes to mind. Courage and uh, initiative. All of these things are really important when you're, you know training people to do the things, you know, with their brand and how they show up. And I think personally, the, how do you want to show up when people think of you? That's a, that's a great question. And, and it's not something that can be dictated. A question I often get asked is, can you rebrand yourself? That means you're in a corporation and you're getting feedback that you're being seen in a certain way. Well, you've come to this class or the session or this presentation yeah. and you start realizing that actually the way you're showing up is not in harmony with the overall image you have. And you start looking at your behavior and saying, maybe some of my behavior is negatively impacting, yeah. the uh, sabotaging you. You can't, again, come to work and say, 
good morning, today I'm rebranding myself. I'm going to wear a different outfit. It doesn't work like that. You have to change behavior. But we know that all self-improvement comes from self-awareness. So it's an interesting space that I'm in in terms of training and speaking because it's mindset and I always say hardcore tips, techniques, and things you can actively do. How, how is what you've learned uh, living in uh, Johannesburg, how has that helped you here, all your life experiences uh, up to 1997? That's, I mean, South Africa in general, you know, there's just so many things. First of all, I grew up in South Africa during the height of apartheid or segregation. Yeah. But we grew up without television, really. We only got television when I must have been eight or nine years old. So, uh, so many things. I think I have learned more about South Africa and appreciated the miracle of South Africa and a leader like Nelson Mandela mm. more than ever. Mm. Because what he managed to do in South Africa was take this very divided, I mean, grow up, their segregation. The first ever democratic election in South Africa in my lifetime starts is in 1990. That's not 1994. That's not very long ago. Mm. 1994. Then prior to the election, Nelson Mandela brings South Africa together. It was very divided. There's mm. a famous um, activist who was murdered in South Africa. His name was Chris Harney. Chris Harney was murdered by a white guy. When Chris Harney was murdered, he could have been the next president. That was an absolute Rubicon moment because Nelson Mandela in that moment said, let's come together. I mean, there could have been blood on the streets. So if I have to think about the miracle of having met Nelson Mandela many times, I actually opened the first SOS children's village in Cape Town with Mandela. I was the MC. He sat next to me. But to have had a leader like that and watched him firsthand has probably been my greatest impact. And talk about resilience. Oh, yeah. I mean, resilience, but also just watching... South Africans are remarkable individuals. How did how did work your experience with uh, uh, Nelson Mandela? How did that impact you? Profoundly, profoundly, because he was in prison for most of my childhood. Think about it: over forty years in prison, and emerges with no bitterness, no anger. There's so many lessons that I think we all learn from somebody who is just remarkable. Was he a perfect being? He will tell you, be the first to tell you no. But just an ability to lead, to have presence. You know, we talk about presence <clears throat> as your ability to positively influence and persuade. He is a superb example of that. Yeah, he sure is. Your business uh, now is helping people with their presentation uh, skills and helping them with their executive presence and leadership. Um, Tell us about what prompted you to start that. So in South Africa, when I was a primetime anchor, I remember my first experience was interviewing. It's so interesting sitting here with you and Ruth because I am having a deja vu. Interviewing business people. A good one, I hope. Very good one. But interviewing business people like yourselves on television. And then what would happen is people would be wonderful in person. And then suddenly the camera was on them, Ruth, and I'm sure you experienced this, and they froze. So my first experience was training the people who were coming on to our business show to be better in front of camera. Then I also knew that by the time I got to 50, the chances of me being on air were limited. So I've always had dual careers. I taught and trained and spoke and then was on television. 
So that's how I started really helping people get as comfortable in front of a microphone or a camera or a podium as they were in person. That uh, seems to be very, very impactful. You, you have, do you have one part of your business that you gravitate toward? I know you're doing some work with CNN as an editor on the weekends, and then you're helping train people. Is there one thing that resonates with you more than another? I have three core programs. I do one on executive. We call it professional. Sometimes we call it professional presence. Sometimes we call it executive presence. And it's one of my favorite programs because it's very holistic. You look at yourself in terms of your physical presence. And physical presence, dress is a small part of that. Physical presence is your overall demeanor. Do you show up in people's minds as somebody who looks like they want to be there? So we focus on physical presence, meetings, and presentations. And then we look at virtual presence because so much of our interaction now is virtual. And if I want to get hold of you in the next five minutes, Corey, what am I going to do? Probably send me an email or a mm. text. Text. Text has become such a huge part. And how are we texting? Don't you find it irritating when people text you and you don't know who they are? They go, hello, Ruth. Just to let you know, the meeting for Tuesday is rescheduled. And Ruth goes, that's lovely, but who are you? So one of the tips I give in texting is don't forget to say best and your name. You know, because texting's become so prolific now in how we yeah. communicate. So we talk about your virtual. Ruth uh, focused on personality style. I do a big chunk on personality style. I use two specific assessments. I like DISC just because it's very easy. And then there's another one called social styles. So how do you show up? So I do that. And then we look at your social presence, your ability to network. So that's one of my favorite programs just because it's very comprehensive. But sometimes I just do a speaking with clarity and confidence class, just presentation skills. And sometimes it's just building relationships for career success. The program I did that you came to at the Bucket Business Association, correct? Uh, it was at the Georgian Club. At the Georgian Club. That was on just what we call lighting the fire, tips and techniques to build rapport every time you communicate. And now I've got a big dilemma. I'm doing a TEDx talk on February 23rd, and it's deciding, do I do... I want you to do own your confidence. Interesting. Own your confidence, which is overcoming nervousness. Because I get asked that a lot. People always want to know how you overcome nerves. So own your and, confidence, and overcoming you nervousness. Well, I have one huge technique that really is helpful. There's a multitude of things. I've actually got a YouTube video called Combat Nerves with Maria. But I spend a lot of time talking to people about overcoming nervousness. But the key to overcoming nervousness is really to develop a very strong positive emotional memory database. And that is to build up a series of positive past experiences because the brain is fascinating. Positive thoughts is truly like Teflon and negative thought is like Velcro. So if you find yourself being very nervous or anxious or walking into a high stakes meeting, focus on positive past memory and it is remarkable in how powerful it is as an antidote to nerves. And I use that every time I go live on television or if I've got a big presentation, <clears throat> I do that because then you're not focusing just on the moment. You're focusing on your success. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I would concur with that. I mean, anybody I think that's ever competed in anything, uh, if you're going into a big uh, presentation or a business deal, uh, what I do is I look back on the things that I was successful at or deals that I've gotten that were successful and recount those experiences. It leaves uh, the freshness and the confidence in your mind. And you can you know, also, I think, if you prepare hard and uh, play hard, 
and play enough games, you're going to win more than your fair share. And That's I think, nicely but I, put. But I think that your point on calling on past successes and bringing them into the immediate consciousness is re- very important because, uh, you know, to me, I find that people's biggest uh, issue usually is what's going on between their ears and how they talk to themselves. You know, your inner verse, so important. You know, Ruth said earlier about, you know, allowing yourself to fail. And it's so interesting because we really are not always kind to ourselves. And sometimes I call that a BLO, a blinding light of the obvious. But the inner dialogue, that's you know, a, That's very accurate, though. Yeah, a blinding light. It's, you know, what conversation are you having with yourself? And the other thing is years of being live on television or giving presentations – Nobody views you with the microscopic lens you view yourself. You know, famously. Why is that? Because we, they're too busy starring in their own movies. <laughs> you know, famously. That's not, uh, that's Don Ruiz Miguel. I know Ruth has to add, wanted to add something here. You were saying, oh, I wish you would. No, I was, I was just, you just, confidence is what really gets it. You, you, you prepare, you mm-hmm. do your homework, yeah. and then you go for it. And it's so interesting because I said when I handed Ruth own your space, I said, for me, she exemplifies that. There's just this absolute sense of I am Ruth King. I am I'm an expert in my field. There's that comfort that comes. Mm. Now, were you always like that? No. Okay. It was it, it developed over time. But sometimes don't you want to say to people, I just want you to give yourself permission to be the expert, to be the person presenting the information. And sometimes that is a journey for people. How do, you, how do people do that, though, Nadia? How do they give themselves permission to be excellent? You give yourself permission by, first of all, reminding yourself that right now, if I'm the one giving the presentation or speaking up in a meeting, I know and I'm comfortable with the fact that I am an expert. Because so often we tell ourselves somebody else is better, somebody else has more information, somebody else has more knowledge. But it's actually saying, I do know. And you know what? I might not be the foremost world expert in this area, but I'm very knowledgeable. Hmm. Self-doubt, you know, is is such a saboteur. Now, a certain amount of humility is, is necessary But often we have unnecessary self-doubt. And, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, you quoted earlier, but she said comparison is the thief of joy. We are in a society right now where social media highlights what we don't have. You know, famously we say we compare other people's highlight reels to our behind-the-scenes life. I mean, if I'm depressed, I just need to look at my Facebook and go, she's having a lovely life. You know, it's just... It's being able to thought replace as well. So, for example, this is one of the techniques. I'm spiraling down a moment of self-doubt. I'm feeling like I should have done better. We literally say stop. Internally, stop. And then thought replace with something that is positive and does work. And I use that all the time because it's very easy in our environment. I work in television. I'm sitting on the set with someone who may be, well, I always say, certainly younger, (laughs) whatever. But, you know, in that ability to just look internally and say, what do I have? You know, Brene Brown said it is not joy that makes us grateful. It is gratitude that makes us joyful. So we hear all of these things. I always say there's a finite amount of universal truths. The question is, do you internalize them? Do you know how to dialogue with yourself? 
And that's a very powerful thing to be able to do. Do you agree that the only worthwhile competition at all, at all is with yourself? Well, I'd like to think that, but we do, you know, would that be ideal? But I don't know that that's human nature. I think we have to understand how our brains work, how we respond to things. However, unrealistic competition with others and unrealistic comparison with others can be very, very sabotaging to your inner yeah. psyche. Yeah, I, I concur. And never before has it been more relevant to us in a society where people are checking themselves out or comparing themselves to the Kardashians or to, you know, people feel if they're not the next Zuckerberg, who are you? And it's that ability to say, what do I have? And, you know, you've heard about writing gratitude journals and the attitude of gratitude. The reason that that is so powerful is that it does work. It does. Because if you, Ruth, <clears throat> Katie, I had to sit down now and say, what in our life is good? Yeah. There's plenty good. Now, what in my life do I wish was different or better? There's nobody who doesn't. Yeah. And that's the easiest thing to do is to find what's not right. Well, it's, it's because our brains are really designed to perceive danger. The reason we have been in existence for so many hundreds of thousands of years is we're survivors. Yeah. So we, we are absolutely programmed to look out for danger. So sometimes you've got to listen to the danger and sometimes you've got to override the yeah. danger, which is famously courage is not the absence of fear, it's the taking of action despite the fear. But, and saddling up anyway. And saddling up anyway, John Wayne. But as we sit, whoever's listening to this saying, am I using my inner dialogue constructively because if I'm going to speak up in a meeting, do a great presentation, if I am going to write the book or write the several books that Ruth has written, what does that take? It's so interesting. When I wrote my first book, I remember somebody coming up to me and saying, you know, it was so simple. I could have done that. And I remember going, yes, but you didn't. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure because what's, what's the difference yeah. between Ruth King doing it or you doing it or me doing it? And I think that's such a, a gap. And believe me, it's always a journey. Yep. But one thing I can say, anybody listening to this can be a better presenter. You can. You yep. may not be the next Tony Robbins or the next Ruth King or the next Corey Rick, but you can be better because you can create new neural pathways in your brain. You learn to drive. You learn to switch from your BlackBerry to your iPhone. You can be a better presenter. Well, one of the things that's, uh, that's served me is, okay, did I do everything I could do to prepare? That's very why. important. Did I play enough games, metaphorically speaking? If there's nothing else I could have done to win, then, then you got to be okay with whatever happens, and you're not going to win them all. And, you know, that's personally how I deal with it. Uh, now, if there's something that I should have done differently, then that's on me, and I got I to own that. But I, uh, for me, that's, that's kind of that's, that's what I do. But what you've said is, is very insightful about getting people in the right frame of mind to confident enough to do these things. Um, you know that rejection is experienced in the same part of the brain as physical pain. So I doubt anybody who's listening, and certainly none of us in this room have not had rejection on some level, because that's just how life is. But again, I like what Ruth King's father said, you know, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and sometimes easier said than done. Well, isn't it as simple, to me, it's as simple as saying, is there anything you could have done differently to win? And if the answer is no, then you got to be okay with it. But sometimes, Corey, even that you do everything right 
and they still, or you look back at yourself and say, I wish I could have done it differently. And th But that's a little bit different. If you realize, hey, I, I should have taken a different tact, then, okay, well, what do I learn from that? Right. How can I take that and be different when that circumstance presents itself? Um, and that is the one thing that all successful, I say successful in inverted commas, people who pick themselves up, people who carry on having common, and it doesn't matter who they are, yeah. business leaders, politicians, the ability to be, to be resilient, the ability to look back. I mean, I remember when I first moved to Atlanta, I had gone from primetime anchor position, starting again, and I remember working with the woman. She said, Nadia, I think you're very talented, and I would like to work with you, but I can't because you are in too much pain. I really thank her for telling me that. I still hate her, but I thank her. <laughs> but my point was, I didn't know that negative energy, and I didn't know that nobody really wanted to hear my whole long story. People are much more attracted to a level of positivity. Yeah. So one helpful tip I tell people, if you are trying to network, it is so much more productive to say, Ruth King, you have navigated your career really well. What advice or guidance do you have for me? Yeah. Than saying, Ruth King, you've, nav you've had a remarkable career. Please, can you give me your contacts? Yeah. But asking for advice or guidance in a way that makes you come across as honoring the other person. You have to be sincere and you have to be yeah. authentic, but that's a powerful way of getting people to assist you. I, I agree fully. Um, you've certainly had, you've had an extraordinary run and I've enjoyed my interaction with you. And what do you think? To me, there's a number of things that set you apart, but what do you think sets you apart? If you had to pick two or three things. Well, I think, because I have a broadcast background in terms of what I'm doing as training, speaking. So both the broadcast background and the fact that I am a professional speaker, when I teach speaking, I'm not coming at it from a theoretical point of view. So I think that's very powerful in terms of tips and techniques. But at a certain stage and age, just the life experience, yeah. you know, having had my own business, having gone through transition, I think it gives you a depth and an understanding, there are a lot of very talented speaker coaches and a lot of people who teach networking or personal branding. But what I like to say, you know, that I bring is just years and years of experience, yeah. wisdom, and so much of it depends on the interaction of the people in the group you're in. Yeah. And I genuinely enjoy the transformation and am fascinated by each and every session people there's not a session that I don't learn so much from the people in the group and they from you I'm sure well the ability to facilitate a session where you are allowing knowledge sharing so yeah. much happens it's remarkable what people know what do you like best about what you do I like it when somebody comes up to me and it happened this week and she said Nadia I gave a presentation on Tuesday and I nailed it now, she was somebody who has a remarkable career but was so nervous. And just through helping her understand how other people are perceiving her, that's very rewarding when people say. Or they get a job because of a networking class you gave. Yeah. So just the, the tangible results of people who find it transformational. What's the most satisfying thing about what you do? 
again, just watching people shift, watching people shift, watching people start a day nervous, unsure, and by the end of a session being so comfortable. That's just wonderful to see and just remarkable to be part of that process. That has to be a a huge compliment to you and your expertise, I, I would imagine, as well. You know, years, Corey, of experience, of working with great people. I was so lucky. When I first moved to Atlanta, I met a woman called Nancy Neal. She had a company called the Atlanta Communications Group. And I met Nancy, and she mentored me. I had a you know, degree in English drama, and then I had done something in speech and drama. And she was just gave me a first chance. So I've also been very lucky to learn from remarkable people. Mm. And for those of us, you know, lifelong learners keep continuing to learn, grow. I'm so grateful to TED Talks and podcasts and the moment I'm reading Inner Engineering by Satguru. And? And it's about inner engineering, everything you spoke about, you know, what's between your head. Yeah. Speaking of learning, if uh, knowing what you know now, if you could give uh, the younger version of Nadia some advice, what would that be? I really believe there was a right choice in life. I've believed that you make a decision and there's, there somewhere exists the right choice. I would like to say to the young lady, there's no right. You just have to make a decision and then make it right. Because I'm always waiting for a sign that the choice I'm making is right. Somebody once said, it's like you, you decide you're going to buy furniture and you are so busy looking for the perfect piece of furniture that you never buy the furniture. I have to say to myself that, you know, it's okay. Just make a decision because the truth is often, particularly when you move countries, I had hoped that I would come here and it would just be, I've made the right decision. But the fact is life is nuanced. Yeah, it sure is. You know, and just say, it's okay. You may not know if it's the right decision. I had this, what we call an irrational belief that in life there were right decisions and wrong decisions, but often they aren't. They're just decisions. If there was a young lady that wanted to pursue a path like yours, what would you tell her? It's very complicated because you, the foundation of of doing speech and drama, which is what I've done from the time I was seven or eight years old. So I would really do, in South Africa, we have speech and drama teachers. They like elocution teachers. They don't have them here. So I would start off doing speech and drama. Then I would go into journalism. But mainly, it's an understanding that you have to have a multitude of different skills and capabilities. You know, sometimes people will say to me, Corey, can you write a speech for me? Nobody can write a speech for you. You know, Ruth King's talk is her talk and yours is yours. So just to, it's an eclectic journey. But I could say if you wanted to be an editorial producer at CNN, then start off going into journalism, Hmm. work for a radio station. Because CNN is not a place that people begin at. It's often a place where they come to with experience. Yeah. Another thing is you just have to do it. Yeah. Well, you've had a great run. Uh, uh, Congratulations on all of your successes and all of your endeavors. And if uh, the listenership wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Do you have a website or an email? Very simple. My website is nadiaspeaks.com. 
Is there an email address or any other contact it's information? It's all there. So if anybody wants to reach me, it's just N-A-D-I-A and then speaks, S-P-E-A-K-S dot com. They can contact me. They can buy books. I will put this podcast up. Well, Nadia, you've been a great guest. Uh, continued success. Thank you so much for being on the show. Ruth, thanks again for being on the show. Uh, another great show here at Tuesdays with Corey. Thanks again to everybody. Yeah, it was. And um, it was a great episode today with Tuesdays with Corey, which was made possible, of course, by the Long-Term Care Planning Group. And we'll see you all next time on Atlanta Business Radio. 